So what has happened, Corey, co-host Corey, is that we did an episode about David Eby's comments that caused a little bit of a stir in the media there mm-hmm. regarding mandatory or forced treatment for an individual that was admitted to the hospital for an overdose and then released and then admitted again on the same day. And he made some comments that I posted on uh, it's uh, the the actual video clip is in the Facebook group, uh, but you could see it anywhere on uh, YouTube. And he, he basically said that he alluded to this individual uh, being a candidate for mandatory uh, drug addiction treatment, which caused mm-hmm. a, a big kind of backlash. And we discussed that and then received a, not a backlash, but very constructive questions and questions that were, they were good questions to look at. And I think they uh, were good food for thought. Most of them came from a physician here in Kelowna, who is a brilliant and beautiful lady who who was kind enough to spend the time to go through the the podcast. And she was she had questions that uh, it wasn't that she was just you know doing it as an exercise. She she really wanted to know why we why we were taking the direction we were taking and. And listening back to it, maybe, I don't know how you feel about it, Corey, but maybe it. I think I tend to get um, kind of caught up and you get caught up in the political part of it. And it, it, there's part of me that wants to kind of lash out at anything that resembles uh, a reduction in autonomy. And maybe, maybe I came off that way. I don't know. How did you feel about it, Corey? Yeah, especially right now, I think we're approaching election season. It's easy to react to virtually anything that politicians are saying these days. And to our credit, usually it's because they're full of shit. Mm-hmm. But it is also, these are also really heated subjects. These are emotional subjects. These are subjects that that politicians are not the experts on. And that anyone who has lived experience has loved ones with lived experience is a healthcare worker and has, has experienced it in their job. I think those are the people who are more qualified to have the the conversation. So when we hear a politician say it, we think, well, what do you even know? You know, and, and we react to that. I, I certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a, a bigger conversation. We were having the conversation as a, as a news clip, but I am so happy and grateful that we received these questions because even without having talked to you about it, and you and I haven't really had this discussion in in full yet. Just in reading the questions, it got me thinking about things differently, and it just got me kind of um, reevaluating where I stand. And it caused me to think that there is some grayer area, uh, as we will discuss here coming up. And then there is, are some areas where I think, no, I I don't think my position changes. But really, really good food for thought. So I'm 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 excited to go over these questions with you and talk about them. As am I. Yeah. So I guess the best thing to do would be to do a, I'm just going to run through them. So well, there's a, what, one, two, three, four, and then some kind of additional questions to the fourth one. Mm-hmm. We'll run through them. So you get an idea of uh, what we're looking at, and then we'll start with them and go through them one at a time and, and just bat them back and forth as food for thought. And then uh, any listeners who, I mean, I would love to hear people's opinion on this one way or the other. I'm sure everybody's got a an experience or a take on it either way. Yeah, so, I hope so. 
So the first question was, how much freedom does patient X, we're going to call this uh, patient X, how much freedom does patient X really have if they have overdosed twice in the same day? Interesting question, right? What is free about having to use a substance to prevent withdrawal is being dependent on a substance freedom. Is that, uh, are you, are you really free if you need to take a drug every day? Another good question. Is it wrong to treat someone against their will if they're likely to die if you don't? And uh, the physician in this case pointed to anorexia as an example. This is uh, a condition that can lead to people just refusing to eat entirely, which can lead to their death if they're not forced to eat. So Mm -hmm. that was an interesting point to illustrate. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when we were discussing it, I thought about how some religious uh, groups refuse blood transfusions and what's our, you know, we know what our our response to that is uh, morally and ethically right now in Canada, but how does that fit into this picture as far as uh, freedom of choice is concerned? This is maybe not, to some people, this would not be a rational decision, but this is this this group's belief is that they don't receive blood transfusions for religious purposes and they're and if they die that's that's their they get to make that choice based on their religion so mm-hmm. another interesting case and then this was a good one for me to think about and a good one for me to research and she asked can a politician in BC even get elected if they were fully on board with safe supply and it's a good one right because i mean we could we could sit here and talk about how we need safe supply all day long, but realistically, can it be implemented? And on a theoretical level, the answer is yes. It is a federal allowance that's that BC has asked for. So they've done that much paperwork and they've got it to the point where the federal government has has said, yes, you can try a what they're calling safer supply. They won't call it safe supply because mm-hmm. Drugs are not safe in there. There is no safe drug, even though it's a funny place to put your hold your toe over the line there. <laughs> they decided to throw that R on there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for this access to prescribed safer supply in British Columbia, a policy direction that was written up and presented July fifteenth, twenty twenty one. So we're over a year now that this has been out. It has gotten clearance from the federal level, but. It doesn't seem like anybody's, you know, there's a lot of lip service. We've seen that. And very few people have actually got access to safe supply. I tried as a patient and as a healthcare professional here in Kelowna. I spent a few hours just uh, on the phone, emailing back and forth, trying to find anywhere I could go or any information even on a physician in my area, anywhere in the Okanagan where I could access safe supply and not a nothing. So if there is a program that exists here, I'm not aware of it. And so we'll get to this question as our, mm-hmm. our last one, but uh, it's an interesting one, right? It Can is. it even be done? So yeah. uh, brilliant question. And that's what we're going to go over today. So going back up to the top, how much freedom does patient X really have if they overdose twice in the same day? So I guess you have to ask yourself, what, what kind of a picture do you get in your head when you you hear of about a, an individual who's who's had that experience? Seemingly, the picture of someone who is 
for lack of a better word, severely addicted. Okay. And someone who, it draws up the image of someone who doesn't have choice, who's doing this almost in their own um, involuntary way, or that they're acting without the ability to kind of harness that. Okay. And that's, I think after we discussed it the first time, that's kind of, you know, the consensus was that this is a question of whether you look at it as a mental health issue or an addiction issue. And I believe I'm starting to think that we're having a lot of problems just because they put those two in the same category. Yeah. It, it's not the same thing. Addiction is actually, there's nothing wrong with your brain. Your brain is doing exactly what it's supposed to. It's uh, basically a, a bad habit has been formed and it's a severe kind of representation of that, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not a malfunction of the brain or a damage to the brain or anything like that. It's not the brain acting outside the parameters of normal. And in this case, you have to draw the line at what boils down to uh, cognition or capacity. Yeah. So now there, I suppose there's, there's different scenarios that could be taking place. Maybe this person is does have a, an addiction that's severe enough so that they ended up overdosing twice in one day, despite knowing the dangers they went out there. And, you know, that's, that doesn't surprise me, but we don't know about the individual's mental health. So Mike, when I look at the situation, the first question I, I wonder is why was he released from the hospital the first time? Not to, uh, not to throw a hospital employees under the bus, but I'm, I'm just saying that there are protocols in place if this is a mental health issue and this patient was exhibiting signs or behavior that led them to believe he was a danger to himself or the public, then they do have protocols in place under the Mental Health Act that could prevent that individual from going back out, out of the hospital, at least for 72 hours for assessment purposes to, you know, kind of to keep further damage from happening. So that didn't happen in this case. He was released. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that, Corey? Well, I think going back to what you just said about what happened in in hospital, if a patient is not exhibiting any suicidality, if they are able to say, I am patient X and this is my birthday and this is who my mother is and um, here's what I'm going to do for the rest of the day and they can show that they've got kind of, that they're able to think forward and and that everything that they're saying is sort of rational and reasonable and not um, affected by a suicidal ideation or a suicidal plan, then I'm not sure that the, that the, that the hospital can hold them. If they can say, look, look, I just, I took a little bit too much this time, or I used a different source that I'm used to, and they can kind of rationalize it to the team. Then the team doesn't have grounds in my opinion to hold them. And that's I mean, right. we, see, yeah. we see this all the time. Like that's a, this is a, hourly occurrence in most of our communities that people are overdosing unintentionally and then are released back out. And again, we have to, I have to continue as we have this conversation to remind myself that we are living in the context of this poison drug crisis. So these are not normal circumstances. We're not in the days of, of where it was just heroin and the risk was that much of overdose was that much lower. Correct. And it begs the question, if it wasn't for the current toxic drug supply situation, would this individual have overdosed at all? 
or would oh, you know yeah totally I probably mean, not probably not and if real safe supply was in place quoted studies before that uh, there's never been a recorded death in a witnessed in- injection site right. i mean that's that's pretty wild considering witnessed injection sites from the beginning were using street drugs i mean albeit before this fentanyl crisis but still i mean that's got to give you some information so if this individual was allowed to proceed with whatever, you know, we don't know what, whether it's a poly substance issue or if it's, we're assuming it's opiates, fentanyl, but we don't know what would happen then. You know, would uh, would this even have been a, a problem in the first place? And you could ask the same thing about the mental health situation too. I mean, mm-hmm. we know we have a revolving door mental health crisis in this province that's been going on for a long time. So... If we had proper funding in place, if we had the proper resources and staffing, we know that our hospitals are in a staffing catastrophe right now. So, I mean, how can you expect the people in there to to make a call outside of the the parameters that they're in? And, and they've only got limited resources. So you're right. They probably, I don't know, you've, you've probably seen many people who have been uh, brought out of uh, an overdose on naloxone with naloxone and they're often confused and kind of angry, right? Like, uh, or at least, at least displeased. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so it could be that they make sense. It's not, I mean, they're a little bit fuzzy, but they're not like, I wouldn't classify them as cognitively impaired to the point of not being able to manage their own affairs. Agreed. Right. So like you said, they probably assessed the individual and like, eh, okay, well, it doesn't appear to have a, a mental health uh, condition that's that's anything to worry about. It just had uh, an accidental overdose and away the, the person goes. So if we were to, what would a law like this look like, I guess, if you're going to implement it? And the other important thing would be who's going to enforce this? You know, if you, it can't be the police. No, I, I mean, could, could you imagine the RCMP in this political climate being tasked with now rounding up people who had overdosed twice in one day and, uh, you know, either doing, I don't know what you'd have to do. I'm assuming you would have to detain them if they've been resuscitated and, and are, you know, have their wits about them again. If you tell somebody like that, they're going to treatment against their will. There's a good chance. I mean, I would run. I would try to run anyway, try to flee the hospital. Which also happens. Yeah. Some people won't, right? They'll, uh, uh, maybe they've had enough. Maybe they're open to the idea of treatment and that's absolutely fine. The other problem that I thought about was we don't really have any evidence to support the treatment that you're sending them to. How can you, this would be akin to forcing somebody with a whatever condition to go see a witch doctor. I mean, except that the witch doctor is less lethal assuming that the witch doctor doesn't force abstinence during treatment. Because if you take somebody and force them into treatment, force them into abstinence, and then they get kicked out of that treatment center, their chance or their their probability of relapse uh, causing death goes way up because they've been yeah. resensitized to their drug of choice. These are just facts. Um, yes. Or at least what we know to be supported by evidence at this time. Maybe that'll change. I don't know. But my point is, is there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that any treatment is going to be substantially helpful enough to mandate something like this, 
let alone what we know about forced treatment or mandated treatment, which we do have evidence to suggest is uh, deleterious to the to the individual. Yeah. People have to be ready. People have to be, something has to click there. And it's sure as hell not going to click when the hospital is saying to them by force, because like, let's get specific here by force means in many cases, because the individual will, will be defensive. They'll be angry. If they're saying this is it, you, you just overdosed, you have to stay. We're putting you through mandatory treatment. That would mean use of restraints, mm-hmm. both chemical and physical restraints. Right. So that means strapping someone to the bed in either four or five points of their body. That will mean use of chemical restraints, like like uh, antipsychotic drugs, like Haldol still is, is used. That will u- require use of, of seclusion and isolation, which we know is not only harmful psychologically to, to people within our prison system, but certainly is not going to be beneficial and therapeutic to an individual in withdrawal or in the middle of a you know fentanyl addiction. Right. So like that's what that actually means. Before we can even get someone into a treatment facility, you're going to have a whole lot of issues with just trying to manage the fact that you are telling now a ton of people every single day you can't leave here. Yeah, that that makes my stomach turn. Like I Yeah, just, it should. I can't <laughs> uh I've had nightmares about that actually. And um yeah, there's something about especially when you're talking about restraints like that and and forced I had a friend that that basically got sectioned and I don't know what I mean I wasn't there I don't know what the situation was at the time but the first thing she received was Haldol but it was a depot form yes and I I cannot believe that that like I I would I would seek a a lawyer immediately yeah. as soon as my brain worked again which would be probably a month or two. Yeah. People who people who receive Haldol, then oftentimes the hospitals themselves will give a dose of cogentin to back off to back off all of the extra pyramidal side effects from the Haldol. Because it because it has such an extreme effect. Yeah, I just I couldn't believe that that was legal. Like I could see a, an acute something to calm the person down, acute, maybe warranted if that's you know, if it's a situation where the benefit exceeds the risk, but who gives somebody a depot shot of a like old school, dirty antipsychotic like Haldol? I mean, you're gone uh, for at least three weeks, probably four weeks. You're oh, it's drooling, really, right? really heavy. And yeah. so again, going back to the like the medical adage of doing no harm. Physically, are we doing harm to someone? We hopefully we don't hurt them or hurt one of the employees in that process of trying to restrain them. Mm-hmm. We're giving them a drug that is going to set them back with physical side effects and psychological side effects. And now we've delayed any care because we have to get them through that, that, that sedation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are potentially isolate, isolating them. We are potentially restraining them. These are individuals who maybe have been through trauma and been through, through abuse and that we probably, are now restraining. Well, I don't say probably, but it's possible the individual already has some resentment towards the healthcare system for similar situations in the past or resentment towards, I mean, lots of people, you know, have had past dealings with the RCMP when they're, they've reached this kind of, you know, if you're homeless and you're addicted to poly substances, you're usually because of the state of our laws, you're, you're dealing with the police 
more than an average person. And it's likely that many of those interactions are not positive. I'm not saying they're all negative, but that's a possibility. So it if you were to, you would have to somehow fit this into the existing Mental Health Act framework, but I don't know how you parse out the mental health issue from the addiction issue. And it would be my, my take on it would be that you can't, if it's a drug addiction problem, then from what we know, it would be best to go at it with a, how about you, you know, if you stay, maybe offer them some incentives to stay in the hospital and just take it easy for a little while and give their body a chance. Like we'll provide you with, you know, what's your drug of choice? Fentanyl, injectable. Okay. No problem. We'll do that here. What's your dose? We'll, we'll monitor you. Uh, we'll get you back comfortable. Just uh, relax here overnight. We'll get your uh, electrolytes back up to, you know, the probably magnesium, uh, B vitamins are probably completely shot, uh, likely dehydrated, et cetera, et cetera. There's many kind of things we could do at that time or offer to get that person in a better spot to make a decision. And then say, now we we're keep talking. That, yeah, yeah. Say we keep this person there. I mean, if you're going to use these kind of, these resources are expensive. You know, if you're going to, whether you, you force a person into treatment or do something where you're going to uh, offer them something that's actually going to you know, potentially be more helpful. So you you give the person a couple of days, you know, if you tied it into the mental health act, say it was a 72 hour thing, but still voluntary. Now, I don't know why would somebody leave the hospital if they were given their drug of choice and being monitored, you know, and being, so you got your food, you know, you're safe, you're comfortable. This is probably a good, if your MO is what the MO is for this, uh, this safer supply policy, they want to get, they're still focused on getting people off drugs, right? Yeah. So if you're hell bent on that, then wouldn't you want to go with something that's got a higher percentage chance of working? You know, when we're talking about, you know, doing no harm, your proposal right there sounds to me like the risk of harm is a lot less than the alternative of, of strapping someone down and injecting them and isolating them and, and et cetera, et cetera. Like that seems like a far more holistic patient centered, just reasonable, inexpensive approach. Right. Because even from uh, just a humanities point of view, like how would you feel, Corey, if you were the nurse who is charged with strapping that patient down, giving them the shot that incapacitates them? I was or, that nurse. Yeah. And how, did, how, how does that make you feel? I mean, oh, you know, like I, as the, like, I was always the, one of the few men in the department and I was always the biggest man in the department size wise. So it was like, oh we got to take this patient down because they want to leave or they're suicidal and we have to keep them here against their volition. It was, it always came back to me mm -hmm. and it's an awful feeling. It's right. a talk about a feeling of, of moral distress. Talk about a sickening sort of feeling of, of like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing here? Um, and then also like a, a really high risk adrenaline fueled cortisol fueled, like, it's not a good place for anyone to be in. And then the person now is, you know, really agitated and breathing really fast and we're restraining them, which comes with risk of, of aspiration and risk of asphyxiation. And, and the nurses are kind of all wired up on, on the adrenaline. It's just, it's a bad scene 
all around. And if that can be avoided in any case, aside from the case of, of, of resuscitating someone who's overdosed, it needs to be avoided. And I think the, the smartest sort of practitioners out there would agree that like you do what you can to, to make that the absolute last resort. Right. Yes. And give as much time as possible for the patient to kind of exhibit whatever requirements you're, you're trying to parse out before you, you make a decision as grave as that, right. As uh, withholding somebody or uh, strapping somebody down or whatever you want to call it. The other thing I considered, uh, which is unlikely in this case, but I believe committing suicide is illegal. If you just decide to commit suicide, that is not allowed unless like they, they have obviously assisted suicide laws now. But if this individual was trying to to kill themselves, that would be you know a kind of an odd outlier. But I suppose they would have to, I mean, what if this individual was resuscitated the first time and was completely cogent and said, guys, like, please, I'm, I'm trying to end my own life here and I, I don't have very many resources and you've just stopped me from, from doing it once. I'm asking you, can you please not, if I come back in here, do you, can I sign a do not resuscitate or do not hit me with naltrexone or uh, naloxone? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and then you get into, is this person automatically uh, a mental health uh, you know, because technically we would consider suicide to be you are a pro- you are a risk to yourself, right? But if you're sound of mind and you're making that decision, then you're into a whole different kind of uh, yeah, you know. Territory. Uh, it, and and this is the exact question I was thinking about when we were preparing for this question uh, because it it hits home for me. So one of my uncles uh, many years ago overdosed and was sent into hospital and it was a sort of a poly poly substance overdose. He was resuscitated and he talked his way out of the emergency department and was a very lovable, nice, friendly guy. And anyone who encountered him would, would have said that, that he was just a really likable person. And he had this conversation with the emergency department and they let him go. And he went home and within a couple of hours, intentionally overdosed again and died wow and was brought in again and there was enough about what we knew my family knew about his health history that he had multiple chronic illnesses that he'd actually been withholding from us that he Mm. had and certainly had mental health issues certainly had substance abuse issues um and his life was just in a in a spiral and i think it was intentional what he what happened there and i think that the you know, thinking back to like, what if that, what if that was him? What if he had been that first time he overdosed, they had have kept him against his will and done all of the things that we were talking about here for me. And I, and I, I haven't asked my family members this, but for me, I think the notion of him being losing that autonomy and being held against his will and, and how distressing that would have been for him, that idea upsets me even more than what happened in knowing like what the whole picture of his life was and what he chose the thought of him being kept and being subjected to some of that treatment. And this was even, this was years ago. So the treatment would have been really coarse um, even more so than it is now. Mm -hmm. That idea is upsetting to me. So again, that's just me because I know that there are family members out there of, of individuals who have died in the last couple of years from, from toxic drugs who say if they could have just been held there, they would have been kept alive. Right. Yeah. You're going to get uh, both sides of that for sure, man. That is, uh, 
kind of a crazy coincidence that you you had that very thing happen. I mean, my God, I would I, I would like to hear what your your parents thought about that and and you know what their reaction would be to having a loved one withheld or or maybe they have a different opinion. You know, maybe they think that uh, that he could have been assessed or he could have been, you know, could have had his mind changed. I don't know. But that's, yeah, I, I mean, that's. I, I, yeah, I think we all kind of ended up thinking in understanding what we've, what we learned about him. And again, that he had like, he had cancer that we didn't know about. Um, he had a, a heavily diseased liver that we did know about, but that was obviously even worse than, than than we thought, I think, I think we all kind of thought like, oh, he, he really didn't want all of that. He really didn't want to go through what the end of his life realistically would have been. And, uh-huh. uh, again, it's like getting into this discussion. It's such a personal thing for every individual and, and, and people's backgrounds and life experience and beliefs and all of those things weigh into that decision. And that's like, that is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I think that's a personal decision too. And I, I don't think it's a, you know, people always come at it with, oh, it's a selfish thing to do. And look, man, you you don't know what weight some people are carrying. Yeah. And I mean, isn't it kind of selfish of, of other people to demand that somebody stay here just so they can, you know, not be uncomfortable? I mean, look, whatever a person is going through has got to be fairly serious if they're getting to the to that point. And obviously this ties in heavily with mental health, but sometimes it doesn't, right? Yeah. Sometimes this is just a, my life has gotten to a point where I'm riddled with pain 24 seven. I've got all these different issues. I've reached such and such an age. Maybe the person's spouse is gone. You know, there's a million different variables, but, sure. uh, but uh, how old was your uncle? If I can, it was the day before his 60th birthday. Okay. It was on my birthday that it happened actually. Huh? Interesting. Yeah, I don't know, man. That's uh, that's uh, again. It's you just. How can anyone know what that individual is experiencing? And just the same as it is with uh, addiction-related problems. You can offer the person support. You can you could tell them that you love them no matter what they they do, and that you're always going to be there for them no matter what. And that's really the end of it. I mean, you don't jump in there and try to like that. That's my take on it, anyways. I. Yeah. And you know, and I think the the kind of the answer that I'm sitting with most comfortably in our conversation here is, is going back to what you said about just thinking about specifically for individuals in our province who overdose, like if we're going to keep them there, I think we better be willing to really look at the conditions and what we're, how we are treating them and under what conditions. And if we're going to make this patient centered, then we better look at like the things that are actually going to be therapeutic for them and make them feel safe, make them feel heard, not make them feel like all of their autonomy, all of their freedom is being taken away. Um, right. And providing people with a space that will facilitate them to make, maybe make that choice a little bit differently. Is someone going to make the, the, what we see as like the societal norm of a right choice, quote unquote, under an incredible amount of stress and sometimes aggression and loss of autonomy and loss of freedom. Like is, are those the conditions where you make the, the right choice? And so that's it. You're right. You're right. I'm going to get clean now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think that's, I think that's a pipe dream. Right. 
And if you do, those kind of reactions are going to be suspect right away. It reminds me of when I was on rotation as a pharmacy student, we go through a, a hospital rotation and I was up in Prince George and there was a First Nations lady who came in with, she had uh, periocarditis or something that it was bad infection and she'd already left the hospital well on IV. Like it, she'd, she required IV antibiotics, left the hospital because she was in a serious state of withdrawal and then... I guess ended up either overdosing or succumbing to that uh, the the effects of that infection. They brought her in again, and this time they had to put a pick line in, and they were going to dump whatever I think it was Vanco or something right onto her heart, basically. And uh, I don't know what it is about that brachial uh, that brachial line that goes, but I just find it. I don't like watching those procedures, but uh, something about the veins, I guess. But they had a a student nurse in there uh, trying to do this line and we were standing there watching and they'd given the, the, this lady's already panicking. Like she's, you can tell she's in probably the first stages of withdrawal. She's anxious. She's already starting to look at the exits, you know, how long is this going to take type of thing? Right. She doesn't realize there's, she's going to have to stay for days to, to get this thing under control. This uh, student nurse, you know, she's doing her best, but it's just banging off the walls and the pain and this, they're giving her Ativan and stuff. And I'm just cringing at this. Finally, they get an experienced nurse in there. They get the line in and they start it up and, and the nurse who put the line in comes back to me and says, uh, she's going to run like she'll be gone in an hour. And I thought, okay, well, so this, I mean, it basically, if you know that, and this is, again, there's nothing to do with the, the staff there. They're doing what the, no, for the, sure. their job is, okay? Let me make that clear. It's just that with those protocols under that situation, and sure enough, it wasn't even an hour, a half an hour, as soon as it, she ran out with that pick line intact, and you can guess what she was doing with it. For right? sure. And what are her chances of survival? Meh. No. Zero. You know, she needed probably a week of intense IV therapy with antibiotics to have a chance as it was. Now she's back out in the winter. Uh, she'd be dropping whatever into that pick line. And you think about an individual like that. So she's had this terrifying experience in there. She's going to die anyway. We completely failed, completely failed. But yeah. how, you know, how, how would that be different if you told that patient, look, Let's get you out of the cold. We're going to, this situation is serious here, but we're going to make you comfortable. I promise, you know, what, what drugs are you taking out there, you know, to build that level of trust, especially with first nations person who's, you know, probably been up against the system from day one. Imagine if you could get to that point, right. Where there's enough trust there that you could make that patient comfortable, get them to a point where they're no longer dying and then start making some decisions. But uh, yeah, it just reminded me of that one. It's a, yeah, these are. And when there's like the, when there's the assumption of moral superiority, like we know what is morally best in this situation and, and us giving you two milligrams of dilated, that's going to last you for four hours and, and you'll stay and receive that vancomycin for your, for your heart. That has to be looked at within our healthcare system. Like well, that yeah. moral, that moral high ground of like, we decide what is better. Yeah, and that's what I, it kind of all comes down to, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh yeah, that's a, that was a great back and forth, man. I enjoyed yeah. that. 